Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, joined as usual by Terry Fakes. We're continuing our last few books of the Bible for our book overviews, and we're in the book of Hosea this week. Really uh, enjoying these minor prophets. This is great. Uh, We didn't leave the driest ones for last. These are some of the richest books, particularly Hosea, one of the richest books in the Old Testament. Absolutely. We've still got Revelation on the on the docket to do. We've got the book of Hebrews to do. Uh, so we have, we still have some really interesting books in the New Testament. And some of these in the Old Testament, I think are going to surprise a few people. This one uh, certainly is one of the more interesting books in the Bible, especially among these minor prophets. Hosea is very prominent. It's much longer than most of the minor prophets. And it's probably as well known as any prophet in the Bible, maybe even in our day, more well known than somebody like Isaiah or Ezekiel. Because we have a whole entertainment complex devoted to the book of Hosea. So actually to the first three chapters of the book of Hosea. To the first three chapters, they have become very popular through uh, a wonderful book, Redeeming Love. And I say that uh, not having read that book, but having been told by dozens and dozens of people, mostly women, although I know some guys that love that book too, uh, what a wonderful picture of God's love it is. And I really do think that combined with the movie that's just come out, which I, again, have not seen, but I've heard is a great description of, of this passage put into real life. So it's become well known because of this story, but this story is only the beginning of the book of Hosea. And so we're going to divide this up into two pieces, talking about the more familiar part and then moving into maybe the less familiar part. But as you'll see later, uh, there are a lot of great one-liners in Hosea. There's going to be some lines you're like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know that that was in Hosea. It's either exactly. quoted somewhere else or it's just very popular to hear. So as we do with all these minor prophets, let's step back for a minute and do a little background info. What do we know about Hosea? What do we know about what's going on at this point? Um, what's the backdrop that we should be aware of when we open this book? Well, the first verse of the book gives us a ton of information. It opens this way, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, and then he lists off the kings of Judah in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Those were successive kings of Judah. And in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So uh, I won't bore you with the exact dates, but basically those kings in Judah the southern kingdom, and Jeroboam in the northern kingdom basically means that Hosea was prophesying around 760 BC to around 710 BC. Now, I'm not saying he prophesied all that time, but it looks like he had a very long prophetic uh, ministry and looks like about 760 to 710 BC. So what's happening in that time period? Well, one big thing is the prophet Isaiah is also preaching, prophesying, teaching in this time period. And the big event is right in near the end of Hosea's ministry, uh, 760 to 710. In 722, some of these prophecies come true uh, immediately in the sense of the Assyrian Empire in the north invades and conquers that northern kingdom, Israel, and deports all the people away from the land of Israel. So he is prophesying, he and Isaiah both, before and after that event. 
It's interesting that this is a major focal point in Old Testament history. There's a lot that revolves around this, obviously. Isaiah prophesying during this time is is big. Mike, the prophet Micah is mm-hmm. a, just slightly younger, but in this the end of the same time period. And then if you think about the stories that are told in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, uh, several of these kings make prominent appearances. Um, Hezekiah being the one we're probably the most familiar with because he was a good king. And Hosea is prophesying during all this time about what's to come. And of course, we know that Israel doesn't listen to his warnings, but he's prophesying ahead of time what's going to happen if Israel doesn't change and if they don't repent and return to to God. We see in the beginning that the northern kingdom of Israel uh, takes the fall first, and it's only 140 years later that the kingdom of Judah, the the righteous kingdom of Judah, falls to the same sins, the same rebellion, heads into the same exile when the Babylonians come. So there's an unfolding of the Old Testament at which this is a very pivotal point. And so it's not surprising that we have multiple prophets who are speaking the word of God to the kings, to the people, to the nations who are in play at this time. And Hosea has some very interesting things to say to to, to Israel. There are other prophets that we've gone over that mostly speak to other people, to the nations, and Mm -hmm. they have oracles of judgment, but Hosea is speaking to God's own people for the majority of this prophecy. And that's a unique role. He, like Isaiah in certain parts, like Micah in other parts, is speaking to his own people, brothers, cousins, family members, telling them they need to repent. And really the interesting thing about Hosea as a book and, and the way this prophecy opens is he's not just preaching to them. God has immediately, in verse 2, you start out in a really unique way to get Israel's attention. So what what does God tell Hosea to do to get Israel's attention? So in verse 2, and this is the really well-known part of Hosea, God says to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. We probably should have put some kind of warning on the front of this if you're listening in the carpool line with kids. But uh, basically what he's supposed to do is he's supposed to go marry an unfaithful wife. And what we see is he goes and does exactly that. He goes in, in verse three, he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceives and bears a son. And after that, she is unfaithful over and over and over. Now, the question that you often get, because we tell this story like it's a great story of you know, Hosea loving Gomer when she doesn't love him and he pursues her. And then he ends up buying her back basically after she sells herself. And it's this great story of romance that that may be part of it. He is showing God's unfailing love for his people, his pursuit of his people. But there's a lot more going on here. This is Hosea's real life. And if you step back from the romantic part of it for a moment, Sometimes you get hit with the question, or sometimes people kind of bristle at this story by saying, why in the world would God call somebody to do that? Well, if you stop and think about this for a minute, we do like to romanticize these stories. Because stop and think about it. Hosea didn't say, I fell for this girl, Gomer, and she's a bad girl, and I want to marry her, and maybe this can all turn out like a Hallmark movie. And Mm -hmm. honestly, it doesn't. And so... 
this to me, when I read this, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, maybe not everybody thinks about it this way, but what I think about is when you surrender your life to Christ, you surrender every aspect of your life to Christ. Now we are not likely to be called upon like Hosea to say, you're going to marry an unfaithful woman because I need to send a message to Israel and you are going to buy her back from slavery. God doesn't usually require that much of us, but it reminds me that I can't give my life half-heartedly. And Hosea, the thing about Hosea that strikes me is he was obedient and he wholeheartedly gave his, really, not just his physical life, but his occupation, his marriage, everything was subject to God's commands. Well, in his emotional life, I mean, this had to have been incredibly emotionally painful. And you see that in several of the other prophets. So Jeremiah, for example, he's called when he's a little kid, set aside for the Lord. And at one point, he just gets so fed up with people not listening to his message. He's been beaten. He's been ignored. He's mm -hmm. been thrown into a well. And he basically says, it, God tricked me to becoming into becoming a prophet. And I wish I weren't a prophet anymore, but I, I am. And, and he says, and if I try to not be a prophet, there's this burning in my bones and I can't hold it in. There's, it, it, there's a tumultuous inner life for these prophets. Now, I don't think that I've, I've never taught this book in such a way as to say, so go ahead and just go make a terrible decision and God will use it as his message. <laughs> right. That's really not what we're getting at here either. What happens is, God calls him to make a specific point, and it's a very costly thing for him, but it's a larger parable to the people of Israel. And this is something you see in the prophets a lot, is, are these physical object lesson parables that the prophets are doing that are costly to them, but it's uh, a message to all of Israel to watch what's going on with this person and change your ways. Exactly. You know, maybe the the best modern example of this is we probably all know families like this. Well, I know several families who felt a call of God to take the gospel to various places. And one family I'm thinking of in particular moved to an, a completely Muslim country and worked there because they felt God called them there. They raised their children there. Of course, they sent them off to school at, at some point. But you get the idea is they have disrupted their normal course of life, if you will. That's not exactly what Hosea went through, but that might be a good modern example of that. Yes. And these prophets did crazy things as parables. You know, the prophet Isaiah walked around naked for more than a year. He laid on his side for hundreds of days. He built siege works to and had and conducted a little battle. The prophet Jeremiah went down to the potter's house. Of course, this was much easier than some of the things that that Isaiah did. Ezekiel had to have been completely emotionally frazzled by all the things that he went through, the visions that he saw. Of course, Ezekiel's wife dies, and right. he's not allowed to mourn for what happens. There's all these object lessons, these parables, these living parables that the, that the prophets are doing to show Israel what it looks like to rebel against God or to return to God or how to repent or not to repent. Uh, Jonah, in some ways, is a living parable of going into the belly of the fish and coming out and going to Nineveh. Right. Hosea is a living parable. He's a living lesson for these people. This is what it looks like for God to love you as you rebel against him. This is what his marriage with Gomer is like. And, and so he gets almost comical at some points about how they name their children. 
So uh, when you get down to verse eight, he has a son and right after she is weaned, no mercy, which is what they call one of the kids. The Lord says, I want you to call this one's name, not my people. (laughs) So you have these kids now walking around with these names that tell a story, not my people. Um, How, how embarrassing would that have been for Hosea? Uh, Imagine as a child growing up and you say, you know, was that a family name? No, I was a sermon illustration. Yeah, trouble at home. And (laughs) my favorite one of these is in Isaiah chapter eight. And this is just a fun fact. The longest word in the Bible is in Isaiah, and it is the name of one of the sons that he bears that is a living parable. And it's Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which means swift is the booty, speedy is the prey which we, we considered for our firstborn, but ultimately decided on something else. But the, these names in the prophets are significant. These are stories that are being told and uh, they're lessons from the prophets about what these people should be doing and not doing. So Hosea basically goes through the first few chapters lamenting an unfaithful wife. And the Lord says to him in chapter three, as if he hasn't been through enough, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man as an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So then he buys her for shekels of silver and brings her home. He says, you will dwell with me for 40 days. And again, this is God saying, this is what it's like for God to pursue his people, to be in covenant with his people who continue to worship Baal. They continue to rebel. They continue to trust in everything other than God, and they won't return to God. And uh, this section of Hosea basically wraps up with God saying, I've been faithful to my part of the covenant, and you have continually rebelled against it. And therefore, um, bad things are going to happen to the people of Israel because they've broken their part of the covenant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's easy for us to read this. And I actually think the message was not lost on Israel. And they didn't heed it, but it wasn't lost on them that uh, this connection between idolatry and the sexual immorality. And by the way, you see that all through the Bible, the connection that God wants to make between idolatry and sexual immorality, unfaithfulness, is they're both kinds of unfaithfulness. And so he marries a woman who is sexually immoral to say to Israel, you have been spiritually immoral. You have chased after idols. So when you get down with chapter three, you've got that in your mind. You're not feeling great about the prospects for Israel. And then starting in chapter four, all the way through the end in in chapter 14, you get what we would say is much more common in a prophetic book. It's poetic oracles against Israel, oracles of punishment, repentance, God drawing his people back pleading with them to come back. And I just wanted to hit a few of the high points or a few of the thematic passages so that if you're reading through Hosea and you get done with that narrative portion, and then you move into the prophetic portion, you can see the continuity between these two stories and Mm -hmm. what Hosea is actually calling the people to do. So the first thing that we see is in chapters five and six, especially, Hosea announces that they're going to go into exile. And the reason for this In chapter six, this is just a really potent um, phrase. It says in chapter six, they, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant 
there they dealt faithlessly with me. There's a little bit of a gloss here in the way that this is sometimes translated. So Adam uh, is obviously the name of the first man, but it also means dust or of the ground. And essentially what this phrase is saying is it's a little bit of a play on words. Like Adam forsook the Lord and did not trust in him. These people have treated God's word like dust, like dirt. Because they've treated God like dirt, he is responding by sending them into exile. That's pretty stark indictment of the people of Israel. It really is. Uh, and yet they're you know, you, God also is mixing this with hope, you know, and you can tell and you can read through this that God is the one who has the earnest desire that they would repent. Uh, six one, chapter six, verse one is beautiful. I think it's one of your favorites. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us so that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. And so you get this sense of hope and God's yearning for Israel to actually do the right thing. Yeah, this is this is one of the most beautiful passages in Hosea for two reasons. Number one, it's a picture of God restoring his people. Even after he sends his people into exile, he's going to bring them back. And secondly, because it's a messianic prophecy, this, is, this has Christ's death and resurrection all over it. He's right. torn us that he can heal us. By his wounds, we are healed uh, in Isaiah. He struck us down, but he will bind us up. After two days in the grave, he will he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we might live before him. This is straight, almost straight out of Paul's letters. It's so, right. it's, it's so foreshadows what God is going to do in Christ. And yet, it's almost 800 years before Christ comes. So this passage is beautiful for that reason. I think thematically, it's also beautiful with our own experience. So you, we definitely have moments where, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we've been struck down, but not destroyed, pressed, but not crushed, persecuted, but not abandoned. This is the rhythm of the Christian life is we we do suffer. We are persecuted in various ways. We are uh, disappointed. We don't live up to our own expectations. We don't live up to God's expectations. And in some of these ways, he has struck us down. He's disciplined us if you're in Christ so that he can build us up. So he's removing the, the love that we have for things of the flesh or things of the world so that we will love God more. And so I love this passage because he's torn us that he may heal us. He has torn the things out of our hands that are bad for us so that he might heal us with himself. There's a great Shane and Shane song about this exact passage, um, which is called Hosea. But there's another song called Though You Slay Me, which got really popular uh, a couple of years ago, which is actually a quote from the book of Job. Mm -hmm. But it's one of those powerful songs, Though You Slay Me, Yet I Will Praise You, which is kind of the story of the book of Job. But it's also the story of Hosea, and it's also the story of every Christian that lasts right. more than you know a few days. You're going to have adversity and you're going to have suffering that actually bring you closer to God. And I just think this is one of those beautiful pictures. I completely agree. And in that same chapter, another one that I like, and this gets quoted, is verse six, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. You'll often see it quoted, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And that's not saying God didn't want them to keep the sacrifices or the burnt offerings, but it's he's saying that going through the form of religion is not sufficient that he wants us to be merciful and have steadfast love like God does and, and know God. 
it's not just, and some of the other prophets talk about them going through the motions, but not their hearts, not in it. There's not a relationship there. Right. This is a passage that Jesus quotes. He tells the scribes and the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, which is what they were missing, obviously. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple other prominent passages, a couple of these that you've pointed out later in the book that have this same judgment, exile, sinfulness theme. What are some of the ones that stick out to you? You know, one of my favorites that I discovered reading through Hosea years ago is in chapter eight. And I just love this word picture. Chapter eight, verse seven, it's speaking about Israel. And it says, for they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. Mm-hmm. And so that's just a really graphic image to me of what it looks like to sin. You have sown the wind, and when sin is finished, you will reap a whirlwind. And in chapter 10, you get a similar image. He just changes the, the metaphor. Chapter 10, verse 13, it says to Israel, you have plowed iniquity, but you're going to reap injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way. And so this idea of plowing, what you uh, what you sow is what you'll reap. And so they have sown iniquity and they will reap injustice. And I just thought that's, that is the story of sin in everybody's life. Yeah, the, the thing that is, is different about Hosea than some of the other prophets is I think because of the experience that he has with Gomer and the thing that God has called him to, he's able to see God's perspective from a little bit different standpoint. And he, at least he, he talks about God's perspective a little bit differently than some of the other prophets do. So of course we know that you have God speaking through these prophets and God is inspiring these words, but he's doing it in such a way that's consistent with Hosea's own voice and his own personality. And you really see that because you know, okay, he's, he, he knows what it's like to love someone who doesn't love you back and to continue to pursue them. And he delivers his warnings and promises in a way that's much sounds much more like pleading than it does kind of the fired up vengeance right. language that we get elsewhere. And both of those things are godly. That's a, that's why we have multiple prophets. Is we have this kind of tone and vocabulary and way of speaking that helps us to flesh out what what it is that God's actually doing in these in these passages. And I was struck reading back through Hosea by the way that if you, if you just take one thread and start to run it through and you look at how God talks about his relationship with Israel, I think this is informed by the way that he's led Hosea to live his life, pleading with somebody to come back who doesn't actually love him. So in chapter nine, like uh, verse 10, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. Um, I saw your fathers, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to things of shame. They became detestable like the things they loved. There's a lot of Old Testament themes wrapped up in this passage. I'll just mention a couple of them. Uh, We don't have time to go into all of them, but there's a great passage in Isaiah chapter five about wild grapes that God plants a vineyard. He clears it of rocks. He expects fruit and he gets bad fruit or stink fruit. Uh, in Isaiah chapter five. Well, here it's, it's a lot like the passage that you get in Ezekiel chapter 16, where God says, I came across you as a child lying in your own blood. It's a baby that's been abandoned and he raises the child. 
and bestows all kinds of gifts and honor and royalty on the child, and then the child turns from him. I came across Israel like grapes in the wilderness, wild grapes. And their fathers, they didn't come from good stock either because their fathers had been idolaters. And this takes me back to the story of Abraham and then the story of the people coming into the land of Canaan. They'd returned to worshiping idols. They'd consecrated themselves to things that are shameful. Um, in fact, if you ever want to see, if you ever want to find out something interesting, do a word study on Baal Peor. It's one of those things you'll never hear from the pulpit. Uh, we won't talk about it on the podcast, but it's a pretty nasty image that just tells you what the, the level of depravity is in some of these sinful acts that they were doing. And they became detestable like the things that they love. This is something that Isaiah talks about all the time, is when you worship idols, you become like idols. You become powerless, you become deaf, you become blind, you become dumb. People become like what they worship. And if you worship idols, you become like them. Well, then in chapter 10, you see again, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his altars. Their heart is false, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. So God builds them up. He nurtures them. He brings fruit. And all of a sudden, the more fruit there is, the more prosperity there is, the more success there is for Israel, the more they turn to the gods of the nations. And God is now going to break them down. And uh, you see this several more times in this book. I'll just point out one more, which is in uh, chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. You have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls and vows on our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. This is another one of those pleading moments where mm-hmm. you just see the tenderness with which Hosea is prepared to talk to the people of Israel and uh, the words of God coming through him and the words that God is speaking to his people to plead them to come back to him. You know, the most famous passage, though, is probably in chapter 11, verse 1. And it, when you read it here, all of a sudden you realize that when this is quoted in the New Testament, there's something being done with this verse. So chapter 11, verse one says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. This is God speaking. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, Cole, that looks like he's referring to Israel as a nation. Back in the times of Moses, he called his people, Israel, his son, out of the land of Egypt. And sure enough, he did deliver them through the hand of Moses. But when that gets quoted in the New Testament, it's interpreted a little differently. Yeah, this this quotation has puzzled commentators, and it's at the center of a big debate in New Testament scholarship, which is which is over basically how do the New Testament authors use the Old Testament, and should we use the Old Testament the way the New Testament authors do? And there's a whole big debate about this. Some people say no, the New Testament authors they pluck passages out of context and they add meaning that wasn't there in the beginning and Anyway, they uh, use them in ways that if you did today, it would be considered very bad exegesis. And then there's people that say, no, if you go back to the original context, they were reading these passages exactly as they were meant to be read in light of Christ. And they saw what was there all along, which was there was a future fulfillment coming in the person of Jesus Christ. And this, this verse in particular is one of the most popular verses to talk about. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, this is the story of of 
Mary, Joseph, and Jesus fleeing from King Herod to Egypt because Herod's killing all the babies. And in verse 15, it says they remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill. So this happened to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. When you just read the New Testament, you get the indication that this is a prophecy that was looking for a fulfillment. Then you go back to Hosea and you realize you could read this without thinking this was a prophecy. This is just a statement of fact. Out of Egypt, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. So what are we supposed to do with this passage? You know, I, I think this is brilliant, personally. I, I think that Matthew is right on. And he is highlighting something that we probably can't go into in great detail here, but fundamentally, Jesus' ministry, in a way, reenacts the Exodus mm-hmm. on a cosmic scale. So you have Israel who sins by remaining in Egypt and worshiping Egypt's God, and yet God calls them out and sends a deliverer and brings them out of Egypt, takes them 40 years in the wilderness brings them into the promised land. Now think about Jesus. He literally goes to Egypt and is called out. And he comes, he goes 40 days in the wilderness. He crosses the Jordan River and he comes to God's people, the whole world, who are enslaved to sin rather than Pharaoh. And he comes as a deliverer to take them to the promised land, which is reconciliation with God through the sacrifice on the cross. And so there's a sense in which Jesus is literally playing out on a grand scale the story of the Exodus. It's almost like, actually, I believe that it is, that God orchestrated the Exodus and everything that happened to the Jewish people so that we could understand what Jesus was doing. Well, what do you think about that? Is that what Matthew's tapping into? I totally agree with that. I think the Exodus is a picture of the resurrection of Christ. In fact, this is not just stuff that we thought of. This is in the New Testament. When when Jesus and Moses and Elijah are on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says that they are talking about his coming Exodus. That's the word that's used there. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the way we translate it is they're talking about his coming departure which is what that word means, which is interesting. uh, But the word itself is his coming exodus. And it's a clue that the exodus itself is a type or is a prefiguration of what it will be like when Christ comes. And this is where we have to remember there are different kinds of prophecy than just in the future, someone will do this. So take, for example, one of the most famous prophecies in the Bible, which is Psalm 22. And Nearly everybody is convinced that this is a prophecy about Jesus because the description is so clear. In fact, you're going to hear it next week on Good Friday. I guarantee it because it talks about the crucifixion in detail. That psalm, if you go back to Psalm 22, it does not say in the future something like this is going to happen. Right. It says this is happening now. And it's a prophecy that it will happen again in a truer and greater and more clear way as to what God is doing with his people. And uh, I wanted to point out another thing here uh, that I actually came across this week preparing to preach for Palm Sunday. So a common Palm Sunday text is the triumphal entry, which is in all four gospels. And we've been preaching, I've been preaching through the gospel of John. And so in John, you have the triumphal entry in chapter 12, you get the action of the triumphal entry in verses nine through about 
17 or 18. And then what John typically likes to do is he'll have an event and then he'll relay what Jesus said about the event right afterwards. So this, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, then right afterwards, he gives this long discourse on the bread of life. He's using that object lesson much the same way that Hosea was, was you know, using his object lesson with God to relay a message. Jesus does these signs, and then he talks about it. Well, after the triumphal entry, he begins to talk to these people. These Greeks come to talk to Philip. They want to know what's going on with Jesus. Jesus is talking to the Jews, and, and he's talking to them about the light. And after he's had this conversation... It says in verse 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now, John likes to make editorial comments about what's happening. So this is this is actually what John 3.16 is. There, commentators debate over whether or not this is a continuation of Jesus speaking right. or if it's John. I think it's probably John who's talking about what Jesus just said. It's one of the things Agreed. he does in his gospel that's kind of unique to him. And in verse 37, he takes up with a little aside to explain to us what's going on here. Though he had done, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He quotes Isaiah. Therefore, they could not believe. And again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. This is another prophecy not just about the people in Isaiah's time, but the people right. in Jesus' time and people in our time. And then he says this. This is, this is one of the most important verses in the New Testament about how to interpret the Old Testament. In John 12, 41, it says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So he's just quoted two passages from Isaiah and said, these are prophecies applied to Jesus. And why are they prophets, prophecies applied to Jesus? Well, because Isaiah saw his glory and he spoke about it. Now, we don't typically think that Isaiah knew everything about what Jesus would do. But somehow, by the leading of the Spirit, he saw what was to come. And in prophesying to the people of his day, he was also talking about something greater that was going to happen. And this is exactly what's happening in Hosea 11.1. 1, and it's exactly what Matthew is doing with Hosea 11.1 1 in Matthew 2.15. He's saying, this fulfills what the prophet spoke. And when the prophet was speaking about the people of Israel coming out of Egypt, he was actually also speaking about a greater exodus out of Egypt through the Son of God. This is a perfectly legitimate way to read the Bible. In fact, it's an inspired way to read the Bible because we have examples of it in the New Testament. This is the way the New Testament authors would look back and say, oh, this is what the prophets were talking about. And again, there's there's still some disagreement even within this group of readings on how you might go about doing this, which readings are better than others, how to use the Old Testament to interpret the New Testament and backwards. But it's pretty clear here that when Israel was a child, like you said, that Jesus recapitulates Israel in his life. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Israel is the son of God. Adam is the son of God. Jesus is the son of God, and we are in him. And so Jesus has been called out of Egypt figuratively and literally, Matthew says. Literally, he came out of Egypt to show you that spiritually, anyone who's in him can come out of Egypt. So this is really important stuff. It's it's kind of funny that you get this in the very middle of Hosea, but it's a really key passage for this whole discipline of how do we how do we know how the Bible interprets itself? Well, this is a great example of how to do it. 
Yeah, one of the beauties of the Bible, the inspired word of God, God's revelation to us is this. If you just read this for what it is, and all you thought was Hosea was speaking to the people of the time, it's beautiful, it's inspired, it's powerful. But then from our vantage point, when you realize that there are layers upon layers, it's truer than you think it is. Mm -hmm. It was true for Hosea's time. It was true in Jesus' time, and it's true in our time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the takeaways from the prophets is we read a book like Hosea, and it's easy to think when you're reading it, okay, this is just about ancient people, kings that I don't know about, place names that I'm not familiar with. And then you come across something like this, which, which lets you into the fact that this really is for us. It's for multiple contexts. It has a specific historical context, and then it has a universal spiritual context that we're still uh, privy to, and, we, and that's why it's in our Bible. If it wasn't necessary for us, it wouldn't be in our Bible. They had historical books for the Jews that we don't have in our Bibles anymore because they're not useful for us, and God preserved this because it is. And so I, I wanted to end on the point that Judas made by reading uh, this last passage in Hosea, because I think this is a really unique ending, and I'll let you sum up the, the book through it. It says in 14 verse 9, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. What do you make of that? You know, from my vantage point, Cole, as uh, now a grandfather and, and uh, in a couple of weeks, about to be a grandfather again with the birth of your first child, I no longer think, uh, and not that this is a bad thing, read the Bible as though this is for me. And that's true. And it changed my life and it enriches my life and it inspires my life. But I now think of reading these words in a multi-generational sense. My faith doesn't affect just me. It affects generations. Your faith doesn't affect just you now. It affects your children. And I love this passage that says, when you read this story of Hosea, if you're wise, understand these things. The ways of the Lord are right. And they're right not just for Hosea, but they reverberate through the centuries with meaning for me and you and your children as well. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast. Yeah.